0: The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including OLAS Media.
1: OLAS Media presents Inside the Crime Files with Anne Marie Schubert.
2: I am Anne Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.
1: by Olaz Media in San Diego, California.
2: Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most horrific and notorious criminal cases in California history. We've also examined some of the most unique cases that we've seen with sometimes unexpected endings. But recently, we've also decided to start talking about some of the policy issues that, in fact impact crime. And so we're going to start that today. We're going to talk to two of my favorite people about some of the policies and some of the laws that have impacted crime in California, and really what I say oftentimes adds to that human toll of crime. And in particular, today, we're going to be talking about what I call, and many others call, the early release of prisoners. And my guests today are, Greg Totten, who is the CEO of the California District Attorneys Association, as well as Ralph Diaz, who is the executive director of an organization called Stand Up for Victims. And he is the former director or secretary of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So thank you. Welcome, both of you. Hello. OK, let me start. Let me just um, start off. Greg, Mr. Totten, we've known each other for a long time. Um, But just maybe tell us about your background and kind of how you landed as the CEO of the California DA's Association.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, Anne-Marie. And uh, my background is I've been a prosecutor for essentially 40 years. I uh, principally was a prosecutor in Ventura County, where I ultimately became the elected district attorney and served five terms as the elected DA of that county. I currently serve as the chief executive officer for the California District Attorneys Association. That is an association that represents 3,500 prosecutors statewide and 56 uh, elected district attorneys. We're an organization that provides both training and uh, legislative advocacy on behalf of prosecutors. And our focus is to uh, protect crime victims and ensure that we have the laws that we need to protect the communities we serve.
2: And so for the listeners' sake, before I get to you, Ralph, Greg, you, um, kind of like me, grew up in the trenches. You were actually a trial attorney. You prosecuted many, many types of crimes, violent crimes. And perhaps um, what our listeners most remember is the fact that you were a key part of the Golden State Killer Prosecution as the District Attorney for Ventura County.
1: Yes, interestingly enough, that case uh literally was the first case I ever worked on after walking through the doors of the Ventura DA's office as a uh, as a law student and a law clerk. It was obviously a horrific case. We had a very prominent couple from Ventura County, uh Lyman and Charlene Smith that were brutally murdered at night in their home uh in a in a nice neighborhood in the city of Ventura.
2: Yes, and just a little bit of trivia is that it was that case that ultimately led to the identification of the Golden State Killer because thankfully there was extra evidence that was collected in that case. So I'm very grateful for that. Ralph Diaz, let me, I've uh, known you for a long time as well, have tremendous respect for you, but maybe just tell the listeners kind of about your background and what you're doing now.
0: Well, thank you, Anne Marie. It's good to see you and, and Greg, and thank you for inviting me on, uh, on your podcast here. Well, um, I was a career prison person, so I joined the Department of Corrections and served from correctional officer to supervisor to executive. Was a warden, was an administrator, uh, and eventually was um, was a, a five time appointee to various positions at the executive level between Governor Brown and ultimately Governor Newsom, and finally made it to the position of the Secretary of the Department of Corrections, where I served in that capacity right to the end of my career. And uh, like uh, you know, like Greg. Uh, the career, career in law enforcement. I grew up in a law enforcement family. My dad was a sheriff, city police, homicide investigator. Mom was in corrections, and um, it's just been always in my blood. And in 2020, when I retired, I knew that um, my work wasn't done. I always had victims at the at the forefront of my mind because I've always thought that they were. Uh, the the one group that's, that's always been um, uh, not given enough attention, especially in the legislative or the policy development within California corrections, and they're kind of, they're left out of the loop, almost having to be begging for attention and begging for uh, an audience with people that are changing laws that directly impact them. And so um, soon after my retirement, I uh, approached some individuals and said, I think this would be a good organization. And here we are. We're almost a little over two years into it. And we're doing great work, working directly with victims, informing them of their rights. Uh, the bulk of the, the work that Stand Up for Victims does is helping individuals navigate the border prison hearings process, help them understand the complex credit earning process, and answer questions when they call and say, the person who uh, impacted my family um, was supposed to do 10 years, and yet I'm, I'm getting a notice that they're getting out uh, uh, on year three, three and a half. And they right. just don't understand it. So, and they're
2: shocked. They're shocked yeah, oftentimes. times.
0: They're shocked. Yes, they are. So, uh, uh, that's what I've been doing, amongst other things. But uh, this is pretty much the bulk of what I've been doing since retirement.
2: Let me ask you this, Ralph. Before we kind of get into the policy issues, what you know, in terms of the California Department of Corrections, how big is it? How many prisons? Kind of what were we at with the height of the prison population? Because people always hear these terms. Mass incarceration and that kind of stuff, but maybe kind of give folks an understanding of who's in prison now, how many prisons do we have, how many inmates, that kind of thing.
0: So, the last time I checked, the current population in prison right now, actually in a prison, prison cell, um, or in a prison bunk somewhere, there's about 91,000 individuals in a state prison somewhere, uh, right now encompassing uh, 33 prisons throughout California, all the way from the Oregon border down to the Mexican border. Um, and um, right now it's probably the lowest population since I've been associated with corrections. When I began in 1991, I remember being trained and told we're at the height of our population state prison history at 100,000. I didn't know what that meant as a young officer, but as years went by, we got to years 2012, 2013, our population boomed up to about 175,000 in prison, and that was a lot of of individuals and the willingness and the desire by the lawmakers to to erect or open up or fund any more facilities um, just wasn't there. So we shipped a lot of people out of state, and then beginning in two thousand and eleven, probably with AB one hundred nine, then trickling to two thousand and fourteen with Prop forty seven, the prison population decreased It started decreasing rapidly for numerous reasons. Number one, the the, the primary reason was the the federal court ordered the population. We, we got put under a federal oversight, under a three-judge panel, that we had to bring our prison population down to uh, a design capacity of 137.5% of our prison capacity. And we're well below that now in, in 2023. So since then, I mean, since 2011 to where we are, um, a lot has happened in, in California corrections, everything from releases to court oversight to um, early releases. To the um, the ever increasing speed of border prison hearings, that lifers are coming to hearings, which throw victims uh, in front of people that they otherwise may not be in front of for another decade, but yet they're in front of these people, I'm not prepared. So I'm asking a lot of questions, and um, that's where stand up for victims comes in.
1: So
2: what is a and Greg, you can chime in too, but you know what's the snapshot of somebody that that's in prison now? Because I think there's a lot of probably misunderstanding or misinformation on, you know, the guy that stole a loaf of bread is in prison or, I mean, you know, in terms of what does that snapshot look like of those 90,000? How would you describe those?
1: There are overwhelmingly people who have committed crimes against persons. You know, this uh, myth that's out there that the prisons are full of uh, low-level thieves and drug offenders is just, it, it is just that. It is a myth. Right. Uh, overwhelmingly, the prison population, and, and I'm sure Ralph knows this only too well are, are people that, by and large, are exceedingly dangerous. Many of them uh, generally have five or more felony convictions. So they're career criminals in one form or another, and the vast majority of them have, have committed crimes against persons, perhaps not for the most recent commitment offense. But they have right. records of those types of offenses in their background. Right. It, take, it takes a lot. Right. You really know, have to, as a criminal offender, you really have to work at it today to get to prison. You have to be a pretty bad person.
2: Right. And I think it's important that folks understand. You know, Greg, you're a prosecutor. You still call yourself a prosecutor. I guess yes, I do I a little bit. Ralph, you've grown up in law enforcement world, corrections. I mean, what's your views on rehabilitation? Because some folks think we just want to lock people up, which I know personally and professionally for myself, that was very far from the truth. But let me start with you, Ralph. What's your, I think you and I are fairly aligned philosophically, but you know, maybe let the listeners know your view on it and kind of why this is such an important topic.
0: Oh, yeah, I think we are aligned, and I think Greg's aligned here also. I'm, I'm a champion of rehabilitation. I'm a champion of a person coming to prison uh, for the prescribed period of time as allotted by law. But during that time, that they get meaningful rehabilitative opportunities. And when I mean meaningful, it goes beyond just uh, the old days of giving them a job, teaching them how to uh, make shoes and upholster and fix small engines. Um, those days are gone in California prison rehabilitation. Now it's, it's so evolved in advance. We have our own division of rehabilitation within corrections, uh, which is well-funded, nearly out a $600 million bill right now to provide rehabilitative programs, everything from education, vocation, cognitive behavior therapies, uh, self-improvement, uh, wellness. Um, I mean, the catalog that's provided to the inmates, the ones that want it, is is rich, and it's meaningful, and it's purposeful. It's well beyond the programs that existed uh, in the 90s and even in the early 2000s, which was hardly any. And that was at the time when we were overcrowded, recognizing that people were coming in and out of prison at a rapid pace, uh, the the revolving door. And the reality was rehabilitation was very low. The thought of well, just sending them to prison and taking them from the communities uh, was going to be enough of a, of a deterrent. But the reality is we weren't educating them. They were coming in. Right. More than half, half of them came in with no high school diploma. A third of them couldn't read. Uh, And therefore, the only way that they could advocate for themselves was to act out and uh, so come to prison, just survive and sustain themselves and get out and just return. So uh, I'm a champion of rehabilitation. I think focusing on the rehabilitation of our sex offenders is critical. Uh, And I know sex offender rehabilitation is uh, woefully um, underfunded and hard to get uh, in California prisons or any prison um, around the country. Uh, because that, there's a large population of sex offenders in our prisons who are going home faster due to the increased credits allowed, and my hope and my prayer is that they are that they receive the the, the that receive the programs and training and insight and and behavior changing type therapy that they need so they don't go out and reoffend. Right. Uh, right. I'm a champion of yeah. rehabilitation. I'm a champion of second second chances, third chances for people. Because I recognize that everybody's raised in the neighborhoods that I was raised in and had the opportunities I did. But um, there comes a time when when our compassion is um, at times misguided by society and thinking that less time uh, and don't send someone to prison. That's really the compassionate way. But the reality is some of these people need these valuable rehabilitative programs that uh, the state prison is funded and that the counties just can't uh, can't make individuals complete. Right.
2: Uh, we're going to get to sex offenders in a little bit, but Greg, what's your, how about you?
0: Yeah, I
1: couldn't, I couldn't
0: agree more.
1: I think rehabilitation has a very prominent and significant role, and I think I reflect the views of the vast majority of prosecutors in California. If we can get somebody uh, into a rehabilitation program that changes their trajectory, that changes their life in a positive way so they become a law-abiding, productive citizen— that's a huge accomplishment. That's that's a net positive from a cost standpoint. It's a net positive from the criminal justice system standpoint. And so many DAs, as we did in Ventura County, we had our own administered diversion programs where we could put people divert people out of the criminal justice system into rehabilitative type programs. And, and prosecutors are strong supporters of those programs. But at the same time, as as Ralph uh, indicated there comes a point at which in uh with an offender that we also recognize that incapacitation through incarceration prevents them from hurting more people. Right. And so there are some offenders that you can throw a ton of resources at, uh throw a ton of effort at, and still they're not going to change that, that behavior and still they're going to present a grave threat to the public. And that's what, you know, we need to focus on in our incarceration efforts is those people who, who present the greatest threat to, to our communities. And uh, right now, unfortunately, the tide has turned. You know, there's an ebb and flow in criminal justice policy, but right now our, our policy is really favoring criminals over victims. And by doing that, it's 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 not only disregarding the interest of victims, it's not only disregarding the protection of victims, it's uh disregarding issues of core safety of our communities. And that's why we're seeing homicide spikes and we're seeing crime uh escalate in so many communities across the, the state.
2: Yeah, no, very true. So we're gonna to talk today a little bit about what, what has often been called early release. And it's, you know, that's kind of the catchphrase now in the media and things like that. But let me just ask you, Ralph, I mean, you were the Secretary of Corrections when this thing called Prop 57 was passed. I'm sure you're intimately familiar with it. But, you know, first of all, let's let's define or how would you define what's called early
0: release? What I would call early release is, I believe, what happened post-Prop 57 when the access to increased credit earning capabilities to violent offenders that wasn't originally part of the Prop 57 plan was given to violent offenders, which included uh, life for inmates, which expedited their um, appearance before board hearings. So um, I I consider all of those new credits that are afforded to violent and sex offenders, which were never intended, as early releases. The intent of Prop 57, when it was voted on by nearly 60% of the voters that year, was to afford nonviolent offenders enhanced credit opportunities with the thought of, they're going out, they're getting out, regardless of what anybody says, we need to incentivize rehabilitation so they can participate. Much has changed since then. Um, and um, what I see, what I see occurring now, um, violent inmates uh, under 667.5C are receiving the wonderful credits that, um that the California citizens thought this this would be good and they're getting out faster than the rehabilitative process can actually make an impact upon them. One statistic that stands out with me and it never left me was the lowest recidivist, the lowest recidivist category of an individual was a life or inmate who served 25 years that has participated in an education, a vocation, cognitive behavior therapy class, substance abuse disorder class, and have meaningful relationships and return um, Opportunities upon release for housing and even job opportunities, their recidivism rate is less than 1%. Because they've if, done the work. Because they've done the work. And if you ask Sorry. any uh, any any individual who fits in that category and they answer honestly, they will say, my my lifestyle changed over time. Sadly, what's happening, individuals that are serving 12 to 36 months in their state prisons, there's no way that they're getting any meaningful rehabilitation That that's... Um, that's gonna change your lifestyle. And that those are the individuals who are at the highest risk right. level to commit violent crimes. And I think um something has to be done. Something someone has to say to get in front of somebody that said this is not working.
2: So let me break it down a little bit first and maybe Greg can chime in here because you know, for the listeners, under California law, you know, when Prop 57 passed, the promise was to nonviolent people that we're gonna only we're gonna let people out early that are nonviolent and the truth is, and Greg, maybe you can talk about this, that, that there's some very violent people that are winning, winning basically, the benefit of Prop 57 because of the law, correct? Correct. Maybe so, define, kind of tell us the types of crimes that so, people don't really realize.
1: So, I mean, let me just give a little context. You know, when we talk about credits, we also talk about truth and sentencing. And the reality is today we do not have truth in sentencing. So, uh, these individuals who are given 10, 15 year sentences under Proposition 57, if their current offense is not a violent felony, and, and let me, let me be clear, domestic violence. Violence is in the, is in the description of the crime, and yet it is not considered a violent felony, notwithstanding repeated efforts of our association and others have it added to the violent felony list. So somebody who has committed a violent felony, like domestic violence, and has prior violent felonies in their background, they're essentially automatically getting 50% credits. The day they walk in the door, their, their time for every day they serve, they get a day of credit. So a 10-year sentence converts into a five-year sentence by statutory law. Then you add to that uh, these these credits on steroids that uh, Prop 57 authorizes CDCR to give that inmate, they can get early released uh, at, because domestic violence is a nonviolent felony under the law, or they can even get enhanced steroids. So what we're seeing is many of those sentences that have already been cut in half by statute are again cut in half by some of the credits that are awarded or the early release. And so, as Ralph said, you've got people who have serious issues, have serious behavior and, and criminality, and they're not getting, they're not in CDCR long enough to receive any rehabilitative services and they're put back on our streets.
2: Yeah, one of the ones, I mean, Ralph, you and I have talked about this, but one of the ones that I find so some extent offensive is this what's called good good conduct credits, which is essentially don't misbehave and we'll let you out early I mean is that a fair statement
0: that's that sums it up and the whole concept behind good conduct credits is that that uh, individuals um, don't misbehave don't commit rules infractions that disrupt the order of the facility um, and that uh, those that disrupt the order of the facility by either violent behavior or gang pressures. You know, both of those things really disrupt an individual's ability or willingness to participate in rehabilitation. That's the concept behind good conduct credits. Uh, But there was a time when only uh, a nonviolent offender who was assigned to a program, meaning job or an education program would receive it. An individual, um, who chose, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do nothing. I'm just going to sit here. Uh, They were going to serve 80% of their time. Yeah, The violent offender. And there were those people. And then if they got in trouble, they would serve what we call flat time. They'd serve their whole sentence and they'd really have to be acting up. And there was a lot of individuals like that. But even those people now um, have the opportunity to get 50%. They don't have to participate in anything which confounds me because that's not the intent or the way it was designed. And um, this is really stems from litigation on Prop 57 after, it, after the regulations were promulgated by corrections. Lawsuits were filed uh, stating that these violent offenders and sex offenders, uh, the intent of the law was for them also, which it was not.
2: Well, and, we, and even before Prop 57 was passed, Greg Tottenham, I talked extensively about the fact, and we actually, I think we told the governor at the time, you cannot, you you are going to get sued by the sex offenders by trying to exclude them, and nobody wanted to believe us, and then, uh, you know, of course, the the voters were promised, don't worry, we're not going to let sex offenders out early, and then what happened, Greg?
1: Precisely what we warned him would happen. All of those lawsuits uh, were successful, mm-hmm. and today, sex offenders and other violent offenders can be the beneficiaries of these enhanced credits. It's worth pointing out too that, uh, in terms of state prison population, at our high water mark, I think it was in excess of one hundred seventy-five thousand statewide. Today, that number, as Ralph pointed out, is down in the low 90,000 range. So prison population has been cut in half. And, you know, for many of us who have been around and seen crime over the years, we're not surprised that, that crime is starting to go up. Proposition 57 did a number of things. In addition to creating the ability for somebody who has committed their current as a nonviolent offense, such as domestic violence or rape of an unconscious woman, or human trafficking, uh, those offenses are considered nonviolent. And so that person, without regard to what their prior record is, can be early released by CDCR in its discretion. That's the first provision. The second provision gives CDCR the ability to award enhanced credits. So there's two different ways that person can get benefited. The enhanced credits has also been applied to violent felons and murderers by regulation. Historically, murderers got no credits. They became eligible for consideration, but they not got no credits for purposes of, uh, of expediting the date upon which they become eligible for parole uh, consideration. All of that has been changed by Prop 57. And so today, um, Prison population is at a low watermark, and our crime is uh, is is definitely on the increase, and more people are being victimized.
2: One of the other ones that I just wanted to briefly mention that I would consider a quote early release is: there's been lots of laws passed in the last several years. There's what's called youthful offenders. So if you're under 25, it, I mean, it started out as whatever under 21, and then it went up to 25. Then there's one that I think you guys all know about, but elderly parole. I mean, Ralph, why don't you explain for the listeners, what, what is elderly parole?
0: You know, I'd have to probably brush up on, on, the, on the ages, but really the thought is that if a person serves 50% of their time, and they are I think age 65.
2: I'm going to correct you because it has changed, actually. Yeah, so um, is it? So under elderly parole, it started out that, like, let's say you're a murderer. Let's say, like, I had a guy I prosecuted for a very violent serial rapist. Um, He was sentenced by a judge to 500 years to life because his history was so bad, he was so dangerous. So he gets 500 to life, which, you know, the victims all believe that means he's never getting out. Well, here comes this new law called elderly parole, which basically started out initially at you had to be 60 and serve 25 years. But it's now been changed, which I'm personally offended by. But uh, now you have to be 50 you're considered elderly at 50 in the prison system. You can't collect the social security, but, and you only have to serve 20 years. So it's shocking, but it's more shocking for crime victims. And and for instance, I, I did a murder trial in my earlier days. The guy was sent a horrible domestic violence, murder sentenced to 26 years to life. Family was devastated uh, by the loss of their daughter. And all of a sudden now he's up for elderly parole and they had to go through another parole hearing. And it's, You know, that's what I call the really, like you're working on, Ralph, is the the consequences of these policies without regard to crime victims.
0: Right. You know, and 50 years of age with only 20 years served, um, you know, if that were me and having done prison for 30 years and watching individuals grow in their rehabilitation or decline in their rehabilitation, one of the two, they know these numbers better than us. They know exactly what they have to do to get in front of a board for consideration. And part of the rehabilitative process now, there are groups that come in on a self-help basis. In essence, what they do is they prepare the individual for the hearing, not to test the veracity or the sincerity of the rehabilitation, but only to prepare them on what's the best way to present to the board. Right, And to me, there is a, an unfair advantage for, for the victim who all they're trying to do is live their life and move on uh, and heal from this. And there are no classes for them. There are no individuals that they can reach out to. If they have a great district attorney that still, still has passion for victims, they they do help out. and There are counties out there, but there are many counties including the largest county that sends people to the state prison system, Los Angeles. Those are no longer there. I right. get the victims and send them to the Department of Corrections, uh, to their Office of Victims and Survivors Rights, who, and they do a great job. However, I have concerns that they can keep up with the amount of people going aboard and preparing them with resources. And that's why groups like ours here, um, talk to them, explain what, what's to be anticipated, you know, what to expect. And, and um, for a person that's say 52 years old, who did 20 years, and uh, that committed the crime when they're 27, you know, it, uh, for a board to test their sincerity based on what the law was before elderly parole, that, that'd be a tough one to say that they are no longer a, uh, a threat to society. Um, that, that's a tough one. And uh, I, I just think it's an unfair advantage uh, on behalf of the, on behalf of, uh, the victims, the pain that they went through and why the pressure should stay in.
2: Well, I think it's also important for folks to understand there's a difference between somebody that's sentenced to what's called an indeterminate term, meaning you got to go in front of a parole board or a board to, to try to basically demonstrate you're safe now to release. Then there's the people that are what we call determinate, meaning you're a set time, maybe 12 years. But Prop 57 um, impacted both of those types of individuals, right? Right, yeah. I mean, to some extent, it almost seems like it was more dangerous for the people that were given a set amount of time because of the fact that they're now getting out potentially at less than half their time.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you, Anne-Marie, that uh, during the time of the development of the regulations and during the comment period, and I believe this is going to come to pass, unfortunately, that uh, the term life without parole is going to be severely impacted here in California because there was a huge push by large groups, including some groups that claim to be victim groups that are supportive of uh, life without parole to be um, for hearings or, or sent back to court or you know, these laws are put there for a purpose, and life without parole is both the, you know, being DAs, it's something that um, you're going to wind up on St. Quentin's death row, which isn't being used anymore, or you're going to get life without parole. Sometimes they're pled down to life without parole just for the sake of the families not having to put them through it, and it doesn't mean right. it
2: anymore. What did Greg, you know, from from a perspective of someone that sat with, you know, murder victim families or violent crime victim families, what, what does that do to a family that had to go through the most horrific time of their life? Judge says it's life without parole, or it's, you know, 500 to life. What does it do to that family when they then get a notice saying, oh, sorry, we changed the goalpost and we're, we're going to change everything up for you?
1: It's devastating. It It is for them uh, a revictimization in every sense of the word. You know, we've always said that uh, the victims have to experience the, the crime, first of all, in all of its horror. You know, imagine a parent of a child that has been murdered and what they experience, what they go through just with the crime itself and the change that that produces for their family. We've always said the criminal justice system, some, you know, it's a, it's a system and sometimes it can be unkind. We've made a lot of advances in, in helping victims through that criminal justice system, but now victims have to worry about the post conviction system, the prison right. system and the parole system. And when, you know, we've told them, don't worry, this guy is never going to get out because we've gotten a, a very lengthy sentence. And then all of a sudden we're proven wrong right. because they're given early release, early parole, enhanced credits, or a parole board decides that they're safe to release for whatever reason. It is devastating to them, and it is like they're re victimized a third time. Right.
2: So, one of the things before um, I want to ask you about some of the kind of horrific cases we've seen out of early releases, but one of the other things that I think is important for folks to understand is you know, we all talk about this word transparency in government. We want everybody to be able to see the data. And are these things working? Are these early releases working? You know, because we should. We should be able to study these things. And, I mean, Ralph and, and, and Greg, what's your experience been in terms of, the, you know, corrections, quote unquote, transparency, that we can see what is recidivism like? How are these people doing? I mean,
0: what's your experience, Ralph? Well, I mean, corrections has, um, has been tracking recidivism since 1977. And ironically, that's when uh, California went from its indeterminate to its determinate sentencing laws, because I think the then Governor Jerry Brown wanted to start tracking some of the changes when it went to determinate sentencing, which in turn exploded the prison population. But I think from what I've seen now, we we live and die by our recidivism reports and corrections. Uh, The Secretary of Corrections um, within the Division of Research uh, every three years puts out a recidivism report. And the last one uh, uh, that was put out in 2015 and 16 has our numbers at about 46% of a recidivism rate with a conviction rate of 44.6%, which is the, the standard that they go by. But what concerns me is since the development of Prop 57, which is voted on in 16, implemented in about 2017, Uh, The next report that's going to come out, which is going to be 16, 17, 18, it's not going to have a lot of of strong data on the full effects of Prop 57 when it comes out. Um, And then I believe we're not going to see the true data of Prop 57 and the elderly parole and youthful offender until 2026. That's in two more rehabilitative uh, recidivism report cycles. So for me, um, you know, I think there has to be uh, almost an annual recidivism report that we have to gauge and look at and find to, to, to see if the, we need to be a course cor- there needs to be a course correction. So as it stands now, we wait for three years for people to evaluate what we've done, which is unfortunate. Wow. We're, we're due for the next report any day. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but I, I will say in defense of corrections, Which I have a lot of friends. There's still a lot of people still working in it. As a part of the executive branch, you know, they are, you know, they're developing regulations based on what comes through law or the voters vote on. But when it comes to the regulatory process, there is still a lot of pressure, even within corrections, to develop a regulation that um, maybe stakeholders would see favorable for the citizens of California.
2: Yeah, you can't, you won't necessarily say this, and I'm not asking you to, but. You know, there's pressure. There's pressure from the criminal justice advocates that, you know, let's get more people out. Let's get more people out. We know that. I mean, I'm not this podcast is not political. It's just it's actually just a reality that, you know, these 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 regulations or rules were adopted in a way that I mean, we know from recent reports that, you know, 15000 people have been let out under these early release credits. Right. because And we don't have any real data to show is it working or not, right?
0: No, we don't. I, when, I was, uh, when I was sitting with then-Governor Brown with the former Secretary, Mr. Kernan, and we, him and I were almost on a weekly, daily basis visiting the governor's office and the development of these regulations, Jerry Brown said something then, I think he's even said it uh, in, in interviews after he was out of office, that sentences should not be the play toy of ambitious politics, it ought to be the judgment of serious-minded individuals who are not running for office yeah. have in mind public safety and have in mind the change that men and women can make over time he said that totally then, agree. and I, I agree with that I agree with it unfortunately I feel and it's my belief that prop 57 has been hijacked from its original intent it's been hijacked and it's being used for the decarceration movement to depopulate our prisons and I can't even guess why people want that to happen without holding people accountable. I really don't right. and I struggle with it without letting my emotions get involved because I, I feel somewhat responsible in developing some of those regulations that now as a private citizen, here I am seeing the effects. And right. it, uh, there are regrets on my end. Right.
2: Greg, you know, in terms of the transparency, I mean, am I, my old brain accurate, that your organization, the DA's association, has been a strong advocate. In fact, there was a bill that you guys sought to introduce. Maybe tell the listeners kind of what it was and what happened.
1: Yeah, there was a bill uh, by Assemblyman Patterson from the Fresno area. I think its number was AB 15, um, that sought to implement uh, a uh, transparency policy so that CDCR rather than making these decisions kind of in a Star Chamber-like setting. And I, I'm not trying to demonize CDCR staff. I think there's a lot of good people there. But their current law essentially allows them to make these uh, decisions without any transparency to the public or other. And this bill would have um, essentially required that they issue a report periodically Detailing the amount of credits and early releases that they had given uh, in a particular time period. And, and that bill you know, didn't get out of its first policy committee. I think you know part of our frustration is when it comes to the early release, they're supposed to notify the DAs, and we we Routinely, when I was in Ventura County, we filed letters in early relief cases where they were being considered. And I know you did the same thing in Sacramento. And we, as distinct from that as these these credits cases, we have no way of knowing when somebody gets out. We're not notified that this person has been given a certain amount of credits. And DAs feel strongly about their cases and they have sure. insight and input. That needs to be considered, and unfortunately, in the in the enhanced credits arena, DAs are not really given any procedural authorization to interject information into that process. And so, it's troubling to us. We also have seen a case this this case out of Placer County, Darnell Irby. Uh, received a lengthy prison sentence and uh, was given an early release. And CDCR has since admitted that they failed in notifying the DA that he was given an early release. He went on to murder a 77 year old woman and dismember her body. Right. And we're seeing cases like that. We've seen a you know murder of a police officer in Selma. Uh, right. We've seen any number of cases where Essentially, in this push to reduce prison population, we've got officials that are forgetting the first responsibility of the government, which is to protect the public. And as a result, we're having more homicides, we're having more violent crimes, and I'm concerned that the trend is going to con- continue. Now, I do think the public is waking up to it. By most national polls, public safety and, and crime is, you know, in the top one or two issues that the public is concerned about. And you can't turn on the TV in any large metropolitan area in the state and watch the news and not see examples of really serious crime. And unfortunately, many of these people that are committing this serious crime are people that have benefited under some of these, you know, open the jailhouse door policies, as I like to call them. The other thing I just want to say is recidivism, you know, it all depends upon how you define it. In the old days, uh, the average recidivism rate of people released from prison was in the 70% range. That meant that they either committed a new offense uh, or were arrested for a new offense or committed a violation of the terms and conditions of their parole within a two-year period of their release. Well, most jurisdictions have redefined that. The state, to a degree, has redefined it to require additional, uh you know, things like a felony arrest or a conviction, as Ralph mentioned earlier. And when you redefine recidivism, those numbers no longer become yeah, out. right, because right. Because you're not using the same standards, and it it helps look good. It helps look like, hey, our, our recidivism rate used to be in the 70 percent range and now we're down to 40. But in reality, to a large degree, we've redefined recidivism and, and get the numbers based upon that redefinition.
0: Right. I will tell you, when it comes to recidivism numbers, uh, as secretary, you're you're put in front of a lot of um, rules committees or Senate public safety committees, and they want to talk about reducing your dollars based on recidivism. And as the secretary, one number that I would point out quite often, and this may have been more self-serving than anything, was that the return to prison rate. I almost kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, hey, I can't control who's arrested. I can't control who's convicted. But, you know, if they return to state prison, that should be the number. That number hovered around 23%, 22%, because it's a trifecta of numbers, conviction and arrest and return that gives you the whole number and that, you know, the definition is going to be established by the Board of State and Community Corrections, which uh, they'll define what recidivism is and what counting rule will exist. And um, I I really hope they stick to the current counting rule when these next two recidivism reports come out. The one coming out should be out already, and then especially the one in 23.
2: Okay, we got a couple minutes left, but I want to just kind of end it on this topic of sex offenders, Ralph. And you mentioned that that's one of the areas that, that's severely lacking. I mean, first of all, how many sex offenders do you think
0: are in prison at any given time? The last number I looked at, and this was right about the time I was, I was about retiring, it's about a third of the prison population are in there for some type of sex offense.
2: And that's concerning. But And I remember you and I having a conversation. You know, everybody's worried about sex offenders because of the, not just, you know, because of the nature of the crimes, but how many actual sex offender programs, like, sex offender specific programs are there in the prison system
0: specifically to deal with their with their sex offense and their behavior and uh to prevent them and give them other skills to leave that behavior there's only one program in the state and it's at one prison
2: and how many people can be in it at a
0: given time at the time this is in 2020 it's less than 100 and i've looked at all the current data to see if anything has grown looked in the current budget there's nothing there, but there was only one at one prison, um, and it's less than 100 individuals, and it wasn't even full at the time. And it wasn't a mandatory placement. It was, it was, um, you know, you were sent there, and if you were on that yard, you would go there. It's very hard to deal with that population because basically, what you're telling the rest of the prison population on that yard, if the yard has a thousand inmates, you are you are forced to participate in that program from this time to this time. In essence, you're telling all the other inmates you're a sex offender because you're going to that class from 10 to two on Thursdays, but it's difficult. So it's, 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 you have to change a prison culture that, um, that the inmates themselves dictate the prison system doesn't say you will treat sex offenders bad. No, we enforce rules against that, but it's amongst that culture. But um, with as many sex offenders that exist, as many sex offenders that are going to, that are leaving prison, the programs that deal specifically with that behavior, are woefully not re- represented within corrections because number one, it's a hard program to staff uh, the staffing for that, the treatment, the, the doctors, uh, the mental health programs that exist with it. It's a very, very difficult one to, um, to staff.
2: Right. But I think the thing that's important is you've got this kind of tsunami of, of policies that have kind of come into play and promises were initially made that we wouldn't let sex offenders out early. And now we're doing that. So when you have these, you know, early releases, I mean, you and I have talked about this. You're just, we're letting them out without the rehab that's so woefully needed.
0: You know, I'm sure that um, upon one of their conditions of parole, they probably have some of the most stringent conditions of parole. And, um, you know, parole, the parole agents, you know, they can put them in programs and make sure that they're watched and observed. But unfortunately, you know, um, the homelessness issue with the sex offender is high. So you have sex offenders who don't have a home that they can actually go visit and make sure they're there. That always kept me up at night as a secretary, making sure that we are um, monitoring our sex offenders when, when we let them out. And I would grill our director all the time. Hey, I'm looking at a number right now of 4,000 parolees at large. How many of them are sex offenders and where are they? And it's, that's um, it's scary. Right.
2: So, Greg, let me ask you or both of you, like, you know, as we kind of end this important conversation, what what can listeners do? I mean, you know, these are you know, what can our citizens do when they start understanding kind of what's going on here?
1: Well, we uh, I, one thing right out of the, the box that they can do if they want information on what's going on in the California legislature and so that they can contact their members directly. They can go on to uh, the Golden State Communities and it's just goldenstatecommunities.com. It is a nonprofit organization both Ralph and I are involved in. and they can sign up for information. We're putting out uh, weekly uh, information pieces to members and if they want to, you know members of the public can use that uh, website to contact their legislator directly via either calling their office, email, or uh, sending them even a video message, should they choose to do so. So, getting engaged, getting information. Clearly, uh, right now, we're in a cycle where uh, this whole criminal justice reform issue uh, that's been going on uh, for the last, I'd say, five to ten years. Uh, has endangered the public. And being aware, trying to take precautions to protect themselves, we certainly want to recommend that. But be engaged. You know, if they have neighborhood watches in their community, join the neighborhood watch. Make sure you know something about your local police agency. But we need their help in advancing legislative policy that pushes back against this, uh, this reform effort because it's literally endangering every Californian. No question. How about you, Ralph, from your
2: perspective, both as a corrections secretary, but also with your organization now?
0: Like Greg, I, I echo what he says there, but also from a victim's perspective, if if you are in a position to where um, you have questions on why this person is being released early or why am I getting notices of going that I have to go to a hearing five years before that I was scheduled to get in contact with corrections, get in, get in contact with the California uh, Department of Corrections. But also a hold of stand up for victims shoot us an email give us a call our website is standupforvictims.com we will respond to your to your question we'll put you in contact with the right people because sometimes what i find with victims is they just don't know what question to ask the system is so large and overwhelming and right. organizations like uh, like greg's and mine we, we can make the world a little bit smaller but i can't emphasize enough to have their voices heard call their lawmakers um let uh, let their voices be heard on 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 how they feel that um, this is endangering them this is endangering the community uh, but they just got to get their voices heard i could tell you the advocates on the other side of this on the decarceration side they are well organized well mobilized well funded uh, they can talk to people to representative's offices within two or 3 days and that in essence that that's a game changer for people and lawmakers right. need to hear from victims because um they can never question the sincerity of the the pain that victims feel and why they're still being victimized every day with these changes. No question about that.
2: Well, I want to thank you both very much, not only for your years of dedication uh, to public safety and crime victims, but just your continued work on such a stuff. And I just, you know, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your experience. For the listeners, I hope you go to their websites and sign out and learn more. So Greg and Ralph, thank you. To our listeners, um, you can find out more podcasts on InsideCrimeFiles.com. You can join our mailing list. And again, I'd encourage you to go to both those websites, State Communities.com and for Victims.com. So thank you both very much. Thank you.
1: Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olas Media in San Diego, California. To listen to more episodes, visit InsideTheCrimeFiles.com. Olas Media.